Welcome to this week's episode of Being Human. I'm delighted to say my guest today is Sam Conniff. He's the author of Be More Pirate. Sam, welcome to the show. Hello, Richard. Thank you very, very much for having me on. Thank you. So you were recommended by a regular, regular listener of ours, and, and she said, you, you must get this guy on, on, on the show. He's, he's awesome. Um, and now here we are. So Be More Pirate is the book. Uh, what first thing were you interested in pirates? Yeah, let, let's start there. Um, I, I, I think lots of people have a, a, an awareness of pirates, don't we? We grow up with a kind of image. I found out that Peter Pan is a, the, the most franchised book of all time. Uh, and then we've got the Pirates of the Caribbean, Jack Sparrow, and all these kind of characters that sit as a backdrop. So I, like many others, have occasionally used being pirates as, as metaphors, particularly in my work with young people and young entrepreneurs. And it's just kind of slipped out as a metaphor for rebellion and doing things a bit different. There's a whole other history that I discovered. So I didn't have more of a fascination than, than the most, you know, it's kind of, it's a backdrop of lots of people's growing up lives, you know, children's parties and whatever. Um, and then kind of this, this question was dawning on me about what I was going to do next in my life. Um, I was having quite a big existential crisis. I was leaving a, a business that I'd run for a long time called Liberty, which had really been a massive part of my identity. And, um, and I'd, I'd started this idea of writing and, and I'd written the most boring book on earth. It was a kind of, um, diatribe about the, 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 the evolution of business and capitalism into the, into the model that we need rather than the one that we've got. And it was, Fucking dull. And it was like, um, really got, it just got really self-righteous. I was really trying to be a grown up. That's kind of what it was. I was, I was leaving the business that I started as a young person in my twenties. Um, and now I was writing a book. So I thought I had to be like a grown up. And so I started writing a really boring and serious book, releasing all that kind of language. And, um, it was really boring. And I, I was then running a session with a group of young entrepreneurs, the kind of guys who've given me all the insights and energy and, and opportunity and, and everything that I really learned, uh, in my career. And I was using some of the material and they're like, God, what's happened to you? Where's all the pirates? And then a guy called Callum had said it. And I wrote that down and went back to my desk. And so in this, in this process of writing and what I was really passionate about, this, this thing just dawned on me. Why was I pretending to be a grown up? Actually, it's in this kind of space that I'm interested. And I just started redrafting it. And as I did with this kind of pirate thought in my head, the way that I've always talked and worked with the young people and got the most out of them and helped kind of realize their talent. I started to think, why do we use pirates in this metaphor? And that's when I began to research them properly. And that's when I began to find out this entire history that's been left out of the history books. Right. And, and that has sort of, and that, and that initial interest led to the book. And now you're, and it's really blown up, right? I mean, you've, you, it's gone, it's gone kind of viral, right? This whole idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's completely it's still a daily uh, surprise to me. Um, and I think if I'd had any notion that it was going to be remotely successful, I wouldn't have written a successful book, if you kind of see what I mean. Mm. Um, it was 2016. Like I said, I was going through this very big change in my life. And so I kind of wrote all my angry observations into these empty pages kind of for myself, kind of uh, to form the argument as kind of a personal manifesto you know, 20 years of trying to change the world. That's what my career has been in social enterprise. And I was just really hacked off that the world seemed to be in a worse state than when I'd begun. And not that it's entirely my fault. Um, and it's like, 
you know, there's, there's got to be something more radical. There's got to be something that comes next. We've got to accelerate the kind of change we're talking about. And so I think because I wrote it so honestly and kind of to myself, uh, that's really resonated, it seems, with a lot of people. The frustration that I felt, it appears that a lot of people felt the same frustration because I was really honest about that. Yeah, it seems to have caught on. And, um, and there was a first wave of, of, of that, and it means that the book's done really well in book terms and it's now multiple markets. And I was just back from Holland and it's out in Russia and I had a big US release with one of the biggest publishers out there. And so that's amazing. But really the virality I think you're talking about has been the people who've taken action in response to the book um, and they're kind of joining this growing pirate community or movement as it's increasingly calling itself um, where we've got thousands of people who've read the book and resigned or read the book and rebelled or, or read or been inspired by the stories in the book and started something, a, a, an activism or a campaign, some kind of a process in their community or really the, the, the biggest one is, is people bringing about change within their organisations where they work and that is unbelievable to watch and, and humbling to be part of and fascinating to explore and try and understand because you know it's, it's obviously not me i've just been a happy and well-timed spark so what is it that's really the backdrop of all of this and enabling people to bring about some kind of change because real change is really hard and it's mm. really right and what is this this you, you said earlier when you're speaking that this, this change that needs to happen or what what is this as you see it the the, the change that that needs to happen? Um, I mean, macro sense. I think that we are still working on the whole in society and and business terms with a model that's past its sell by date. I think the, the the defining business model of the latter part of the twentieth century was by and large exploitation. Right, that's really what fueled our our businesses and and drove society, and that's that's drawn from the you know, the, the earliest point of, of capitalism, and I'm not denying the argument that capitalism has lifted billions of people out of poverty and created all manner of innovation. But as we are beginning to understand that at its core, there was some degree of exploitation, either of human capital or of natural resources, and we seem to have run out of both as we face both a crisis of anxiety and identity out of ourselves and a more than a crisis of our impending clim climate um, existential crisis. So that model doesn't work anymore. So I don't see uh, a new and emergent model for the as we head towards the midpoint of the 21st century. And so continuing with the one we've got is suicidal and waiting for someone to design the new one because we need it isn't going to happen because you know, that leadership isn't around currently. So where else is it going to come from other than within and from from all of us? Right. And And this being... And this being pirate, as you see it, is a catalyst for this happening, for this shift happening. And and what does that mean? What does it mean to be to be pirate? But if we accept that we've got these kind of, and I was, I've referred to them as rules, and, that, and you know, we could talk about behaviours or, or habits or the status quo. And I think challenging those things is really, really hard. But it feels to me really, really important. Because, like I say, most of us are within organisations where there's so many rules or ways we do things that we know we've got issue with or we know are now counterintuitive or, or worse they're still we're pulling us towards this dangerous model and when i say that i feel like i'm speaking in really broad terms so let's be me let me be specific if we take the emergency of our climate for example um and yet we know that many of us work in organizations 
um, you know, wedded to the model of consumerism. We, we find ourselves in a, in a world 60% over its biosphere capacity. So if any way we're just part of making stuff, right, then whatever that organization is, is, is rapidly heading towards its kind of palm oil moment when mass awareness will suddenly push back and that's no longer appropriate. And, and worse than that, I think fast forward a few years and it will begin to look more like more like war crime. I mean, you know, there really is a huge issue with this and, and it's very, very hard, even those of us who feel really passionate about it, to think, well, how am I going to get this great big organisation to change? You know, more than a sophisticated recycling programme in the kitchen. You know, actual, real, uh, what are we going to, what can we stop doing? And that's really tough. Or whether it be, you know, workplace culture where there feels like there's so many rules that need breaking from the from the ways that we work to the 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 the, 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 the productivity cycles that we're in, or uh, the timings, or the flexibility, or the fluidity, or even like the, the mass talk about automation coming to steal all our There's so much nonsense around all of this, yet we just keep showing up and doing things the way they've always been done. I think that's the singular message of the book. That the biggest mistake I think we can make at the moment is to believe that the way things are is the way things have to be. Mm. So. With those are the kinds of um, frustrations that I, I hear back, and they can be really articulated to a very precise point, like I hate meeting culture where I work. It eats up all of our time and no one gets anything done, and it's badly run, and it's mainly all the white blokes who speak over all of us. Or it's very broad terms, and I feel deeply frustrated with the, 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 the shape of the world or these challenges in society and my ability to do something about it. So those are the kind of broad terms of frustrations. So to your specific question, what does it mean to be more pirate? The, the story as I began to discover it of the golden age of pirates, the, the period I'm talking about in the book, 300 years ago exactly is termed the golden age, and it lasted for about 35 years. So in those times, you know, almost a full um, lifetime. And there's some really strong... Similarities, you know, the, the average age of a pirate turns out is 28 to the kind of the millennials of the 18th century. There's this self-interested establishment that doesn't really have a plan for the future. Similar. There's this backdrop of interconnected international conflicts, but no one really knows what the fuck is going on. There's the uh, dawn and advent, really, of, of industrialization and, and capitalism. Well, not industrialization yet, but this, this coming automation and innovation that's driving redundancies. And so the pirates had this opportunity to not just reject society the way they're portrayed but to rewrite the rules of society and by stepping outside this really unfair unjust and quite broken system they came up with new operating uh, systems that they then re-exported back to society so in pirate communities there was uh, a sense of justice and fairness that wasn't otherwise apparent in mainstream society there was fair pay within the organizations there was a workplace compensation scheme where if you were injured you could be re recompensated and protected there was same-sex marriage with an inheritance clause because these were largely male societies although they weren't exclusively male societies and where there were females involved there was equality also not just in terms of pay as there was for everyone else but you even had female leaders the likes of which weren't really seen anywhere outside of the church um in society or, or royalty so you had this you know there was there was the release of slaves into a community where freedom was then granted to them, you know, 150 years before the abolition of slavery. There was kind of halacracy, the system of uh, dynamic leadership. There was uh, a kind of representative democracy that the world had never seen, more representative than Athens, uh, you know. So there's this really amazing untold story that took place in these communities that were 
not just rebelling, you know, as the story is told, but really reinventing the ways things could be done. And, and all of those big ideas then became you know, mainstream. And this is why I think it's relevant now, because we've got great big similar challenges. You know, some of these these topics you're talking about at the time, like workers' rights, and that was you know punishable by death or even homosexuality in the Royal Navy. So big issues, right? They were scary to tackle, and they came up with big and meaningful solutions. And that's what I think we could do with a kick up our asses ourselves. I think there's a a crisis of imagination at a leadership level, a vacuum of imagination, you know, in terms of big ideas to deal with these big problems, and this kind of horrible sense that we're just sleepwalking towards a cliff edge on many of these big topics and a, a, a lack of belief that there's an opportunity for not just real change but real leadership from most of us and i think that's the bit that i want to speak to because that's the bit that i find most untrue that there is a huge uh lesson in everything that i've read and learned and it doesn't just stop at the pirates because i've looked into social movements and, and rule breakers throughout history that all great change starts from really small groups of people that funding mm. Does in and and here we suddenly are thinking, oh, great chat won't come from us. That's going to come from our leaders, whatever. Who've completely proven themselves inadequate. And this reminder that change does begin with small groups of thoughtful, committed citizens, as that great quote goes. And that's that's really what's at the core of it. So the, the pirate metaphor is engaging and kind of fun, and people have a, a picture of it. But as soon as the, the conversation gets started, or you get into the book, or one of my workshops, or anything else, really, it's it's fundamentally about you, Richard, and, and me. And, and anybody else listening, Charlotte, hello. Uh, <laughs> our ability, your ability to overcome the frustration that you might also feel as I did of fucking hell, what a mess, and what am I going to do about it? And be able to step into a place of fucking hell, what a mess. I can see what I can do about it. And more than that, I'm going to do something. Right. Yeah, I get, I get that. But isn't there a problem in that the whole thing was predicated on on basically thieving? Where, where's the problem? <laughs> Right. Well, if we say, I mean, is that is that a part you have to sort of deftly ignore that ultimately <laughs> these guys were just robbing other people? I... Yeah. Well, no, certainly not. I think it's the, I think it's the good bit to get into. Um, our model currently is still based on a large amount of thievery. Um, you know, the, the the poor in society subsidise the rich, and you know, the transfer of wealth does not go in a fair direction, and um, by and large, we know this to be incredibly true. You know, wealth has accumulated within a tiny percentage of people, and it hasn't been done really in ordinary or fair means that has not involved some degree of exploitation. Right. So the the, the model that we have can't get too much of a moral high ground, whilst it's certainly improved in some ways. And the times therein, the pirates' model of stealing Spanish gold. Let's remember that the Spanish gold was already stolen and being. Uh, uh, involved in really in annihilation of an indigenous population in its own theft. And then that model of, of stealing had been advocated and supported by the Queen and country for over 150 years as they laid, laid the foundations for a deeply exploitative and problematic empire. So if your family had for three generations been out at sea, <laughs> involved in this great big moral mess, but by and large robbing, um, sanctioned by the Queen under what was called a letter of mark, which allowed any sailor of uh, English colours and flying the flag of English colours um, to rob Spanish. You know, that was not only legal, but, but you know, encouraged. Um, and then that changed because of diplomatic arrangements and certain marriages that took place as the rich and landed, you know, cut up the world to suit them. And then you were told that this was no longer legal. Well, 
you know, this is a time when it was deeply amoral that that, that public execution was uh, public entertainment. And so by and large, it's hard to say. And I know this is all moral moral relativism through the uh, eyes of history, but, you know, it doesn't need to be judged and understood that way. And so then when you get to actually the pirates themselves, all of that being context, they weren't quite... Uh, as much the story was only half told, the story that we were told wasn't completely true. So many historians, real pirate historians, will argue that they were not as violent as the history books tell us. And in fact, they couldn't be. The pirate economists will agree with this. In some instances, pirates are outnumbered about 45 to 1 when you put them up against the Royal British Navy or the Spanish Armada or even the East India. Um, the, the Dutch Navy were the ones who invented keel hauling, one of the most torturous things I've ever heard described. Um, the East India Company were using rape as a method to subjugate and populate and, and really propagate their nefarious business model. And the Royal British Navy were executing and drugging their own recruits. So the pirates rejected all of that and rewrote fair systems. Uh, they had to really rely on their brand and their story. They didn't really ever want to rely on violence because they didn't have any resource to uh, replenish or, or repair themselves. So Yes, they had this very scary reputation, but that was deliberate so that they they could get on with their business without actually engaging in violence. Some will argue they were more of the, the more of the peace, most peaceful people at sea at the time. So yeah, it is really something we've got to get into because I think we have to ask the same question now. There's a there's but, a yeah okay, but but are you, are you not suggesting there that they were just the the the, the less violent thieves then? Um, they were the least violent thieves. Yeah. And they were the least violent and most effective. Uh, and the business model that they operated in at the time, a, a large normal business model, involved a huge degree of thievery. You know, it was far more normal um, than now. But I'm suggesting that now we've legalized aspects of our thievery. You know, our, our immoral business uh, structures fit within a legal uh, framework. But there's a big jump between legality and morality at the moment. Mm. All you have got is people with a clear set of principles, you know, the pirate code that determines a set of rules that were right for them, you know, where fairness and justice and uh, equality were, were principles that you lived and died by. And they called bullshit on the systems of the time. I think that's one of the things we're missing. We can happily say what's, what's right and wrong, but you know, that's pretty confusing when you start looking into it. We've got, you know, uh, you know, Facebook is an easy one to pick out because they're being so lambasted at the moment. But, you know, they, they committed treason, treason, once a hangable offence and got slapped a, a half million euro fine on it. And yet, uh, you know, my my work, largely the stuff I've done with Liberty, will also tell me that systematically we send the same groups of people again and again uh, back to prison. Um, so entirely the wrong news. So... This, these are the questions of our age, I think. And the pirates wrote themselves a new morality, a new social contract, you know, based on principles and values. And that's the bit that I think can't be ignored. And we can't be scared of looking into the slightly darker, off-the-edges off places to learn lessons from. And that's the bit that I, I, I want. And I really, I, I talk about the morality of it. You know, these are people who are engaged in kidnap and torture. Yes, absolutely. Um but these were the times they were in. And once we're really honest about that and understand it, I do then think there's legitimacy in understanding the other half of their sophisticated innovations. Right.
And what, well, let's talk about that. So what are the sophisticated in innovations that impressed you most in your, in your study of them? The, the kind of the reorganization um, that they undertook. You, know, you have these huge administrative, bureaucratic, uh, stratified systems, right, where the, the, the human was deeply subjugated in these terrible environments. And that kind of summed up the time. And it's, you know, I think the metaphor for there for us you know, is really clear. We have these huge, large, unaccountable organizations. And this phrase has emerged from one of the pirates that have worked with me now about rehumanizing the system. And there's something that's done in, the, in pirate terms. They redistributed power away from the center. So every pirate within the pirate organization was um, had an equal say and a voice in matters. It meant that the, the captain, the person in charge of strategy and direction, became accountable to the community because the community could, could depose that captain at any time. So oh, yeah. really? Yeah, truly. Uh, any, any given moment, they could vote the captain out if they felt that they'd lost courage or direction. So the captain, become, if you think about this in like a in contemporary terms, the chief executive who is truly accountable to all of the staff. You know, so therefore, their actions are going to be uh, ones that are in the best interest of the overall vision and mission. And then there's a, a mechanism, and it was done through the quartermaster, who was in charge of the community and the crew and was given responsibility for their voice. And the quartermaster was given equal stature to the captain. So one in charge of strategy, one in charge of culture, which is you know, now common management thinking. And this created a two-house system, a, a dual executive, uh, the checks and balances why we have a two-house system in government or a board and a chief executive in the business. But this predates the Companies Act and it predates the Parliament Act. So, and of course, well, of course, in commercial companies, the board doesn't represent the staff; it represents the shareholders. I mean, that's, that's exactly a fundamental difference. And it's, there's a, there's a kind of there is a, there's checks and balances in there. Yeah, there's not there's the only company that I know of where a similar thing exists is John Lewis, where the members have a clause where they can uh, depose the chairman, but there's never been enacted, and they haven't had need to. But what a what a radical thought that, that an organisation that the, the leader of an organisation should feel in some way responsible to the people in the organisation. I mean, crazy. Um, and it meant that they were deeply motivated and really uh, dynamic and incredibly effective. And so here we are in this, this moment in time where big business does seem to be part of our problem. Right? There's this kind of growing sense that the big in business has moved to being a liability where we used to think of it as an asset. And it means that business is unaccountable. It means that it can have this sometimes negative output that affects our environment and, and, and more. Um, and then no one really knows what to do about it. So uh, back in these systems, yes, they achieved scale. And when they wanted to, they could en masse become an army of thousands of pirates. But they could also then uh, disassemble and go back to being multiple small cellular organizations. So you know, there's a lot of talk in business around how do you stay nimble or think agile. And here in these sophisticated organizations, they've, they've done it in, in, incredibly and dynamically. So whilst we're having these big conversations about organization, what's the right kind of organization for the, for the 21st century? Here, 300 years ago, I think there are clues in the sophistication of, of their organization. And they weren't doing it to help design the future. And there's no question, you know, back to the morality piece, that these were you know, really foresightful liberals. No, they were just trying to design something that was fairer for them in that moment and in so doing a bit like me in the book right it wasn't trying to write anyone else's manifesto i was just trying to make sense of the world myself and in so doing they created these great waves you know they are i think they're they're, they're left out of the history of the working class movements really from the the, the levelers and toll pile right through the english civil war and then you start getting into 
um, the cooperative movement, trade unions movement, I think genuinely the, the pirates sit there as social revolutionaries and working class heroes, but because they've, they were allowed by history to be recast as these kind of romantic rogues, we've missed out on that and really important part of the puzzle. Right. Yeah. Well, well, yeah, I see that the working class heroes, but also the, the, the business innovators, maybe another. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 Totally. And there's, there's this thing of like history and, and people who do stand up to channel. I was trying to explain this to my daughter, um, whose model of pirates is, of course, a cartoony one. And she's only six. And so I don't want to, you know, she goes to pirate fancy dress parties. You know, I don't want to mess with that. Um, but this conversation about rule breaking is really difficult. And the book was out just before the statue of Millicent Fawcett was uh, unveiled in Parliament Square. And so I took my daughter's guard up to go and see that statue because it was a way that I could you know, again, begin to kind of cut through this moral mess and, you know, what you can get caught up in. Because here in Millicent, it clearly is a woman who did the right thing, but at the time was doing the wrong thing. You know, she broke rules, she broke laws, she broke conventions, she defied social constructs, and she knew that it was absolutely the right thing to do the wrong thing because she had a degree of prescience to her that I think rule breakers and artists have in common, that they can see what's coming and therefore they're willing to act upon it. And the risks that she took to herself and her those that she loved and, and really everything that she held dear was so important for the freedoms that were to come. But she had no knowledge really or could 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 foresee a hundred years into the future. Yet here I am with Scarlett, who now enjoys the freedoms that she was willing to bring about. And in the moment, uh, it became kind of clear this interesting notion to me that we we often make statues for rule breakers. Like we rarely make statues, I suppose, for people who just follow orders. And there's something in this. And and that, well, that. Well, actually, just for our viewers again, so so who's the statue of, just for people who are not aware of that context? Millicent Fawcett was one of the pioneers of the suffragette movement, um, and to mark a 100-year centenary of, of Millicent Fawcett and the suffragettes, she became the first statue of any female to be unveiled in Parliament Square, just out, outside Westminster in London, which has got many figureheads that are important to history, from Nelson Mandela to Winston Churchill, but not one of them was a female right. until the statue of Millicent was was unveiled. And so when I'm trying to be deliberately be provocative and talk about the importance of pirates as rule breakers, because I think as we stand in the 21st century operating on 20th century rules, we need some rule breakers to bring us to the future. And people will think, you know, what's all this pirate bollocks? Uh, and then suddenly I'm saying that I think they exist on the spectrum between the suffragettes and the civil rights movement. And you know, that's quite hard for some people to get their heads around immediately. And they'll assume that I don't really know my history or worse. I'm being disrespectful to those important movements. But that really is where I'm trying to position this. Right. And talking about statues, tell us about the Statue of Liberty in, in the book. It's really, you, you've obviously done your research. It's great. It's one of my favourite, favourite stories. And I love to tell it and rarely know anyone. It's really good, actually, as well. The morality question, I really appreciate being picked up on that. It, 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 we had such a big discussion, my editor at Penguin. I was like, I think this is really important. It needs to go in up front. Um, and she was like, no, 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 I think it's fine. I think everyone's going to get the, get the thing. Uh and actually, it's probably the thing I get asked least about. So I'm really grateful for it being challenged. You know, but wait a minute, what were, these guys were total torturous bastards. Um, so that and, and Statue of Liberty. So there is a, a story of Anne Bonny, one of the queens of uh, pirates, and her story is just incredible. Um, she was born in Ireland, moved to America, married off to a guy that she didn't love, rebelled against uh, that, and then she fell in love with a pirate, Jack Rackham, and then she and Jack, like, terrorized the east and the seaboard uh and there's a whole history of pirates and their relationship with the colonial governors who were preparing to kick out the brits and they were using the pirates quite uh, regularly as their kind of armed 
militia in this you know, campaign for, for, for democracy and their own independence, uh, which is a spirit that the pirates really chimed with, because by this point, uh, this uh, Anne Bonny is like in her prime exactly 300 years ago, 1719, and um, the, the pirate community had formed on land, so these big ideas we've been talking about moved onto land and formed this proto-democracy, really, in the island of Nassau, so she's a figurehead there, and uh, eventually, she, you know, these famous, amazing, like, overblown stories of bravery where she's taking on the Royal British Navy and all the men are hiding downstairs and she's alone with two pistols, you know, holding them off. She's just, it's just an incredible story. And there weren't that many women who you could talk about in this way at the time. And so her story really began to reverberate around the world and was featured in penny operas and penny dreadfuls and back in England and was you know, being held up and sung about in working class London. And that began to really kind of chime. And it's thought that the kind of proto-feminist literary circles of Anne Wollenscroft and others um, were partly inspired by this story. And so you saw it go from kind of uh, common everyday culture into kind of more high-minded circles. And then those circles began to inform what would then become the suffragette movement. And Christian Delacroix uh, was known to have a copy of the book at the time, which had all the big pirate stories in. And there was this incredible... Um, drawing of Anne Bonny in it, uh, which was in his studio in Paris when he was painting Lady Liberty Leading the Brave, which is the iconic image of um, uh, Les Miserables, and has this figurehead leading uh, with her arm aloft and d death all around and, and portraying, really, the most enduring artistic image of liberty, uh, which in turn is thought to have played a role in forming the designs of the Statue of Liberty. So there is a kind of indirect through the years uh, story that you kind of have to choose to believe because it's not like <laughs> uh, you know an unarguable um, uh, linkage in history but I like it nonetheless because it's in, in much the same way now many of these kind of current um, big stories we've got you know workplace culture rights equality you know even like pay equality and, and, and pay gaps and all of these things I can tell you the story of how the pirates had addressed them. That's not to pretend that it's we could we have to thank pirates for each and every one of those, but we didn't understand that they played a role in there through the difficult, you know, hard to look through lens of history and sometimes hidden. So for me, the the Statue of Liberty one is a really brilliant, iconic uh, way to say there are these strands that that, that that join us up and that pirates played a role at this interesting and important point of history. And you know, we live in in historic times, and it's time to give them some of their credit right and um well what, what better sort of official anointment of the of the pirate contribution than to say that statue of liberty was she's she's a pirate right yeah when uh, i went out for the for the u.s launch I was, I was really trying to think of the ways that i could get up there and put some kind of uh eye patch on her but um yeah the the levels of security and the sense of humor of of, of the u.s security once i got there it was impossible well, actually, tell us about the, the the pirate stunt you pulled with your publisher. Oh, I've had a lot of a, a lot of fun. We um we were getting close to the book coming out, and I was really um really aware of my own cliche. So I was uh, I've already mentioned I was leaving Liberty, which had been kind of my life's work, and I was you know yet another middle class middle aged white guy leaves the marketing agency, writes a book, and you know becomes public speaker. And um, it's a cliche I failed to avoid, um, but. I was, you know, beginning to get quite excited about the book and its potential. I'd done lots of workshopping of it and, and I'd become really committed 
to that process. And so working with, you know, not just young entrepreneurs, which is my kind of community, but also people within large organizations that I began to feel the book was for, you know, those of us frustrated by the kind of stasis or our lack of accelerated change. And I just kept seeing, I finished the workshops and see people really inspired and then start to hear of people taking action on it. So I, I knew there was something going on. And the guys at Penguin had been really great and come along to them. They were getting excited too. But there wasn't much of a budget. I'm a brand new author and, you know, it was a, you know, it was a priority book, but not a major priority. And book publishing budgets aren't huge anyway. So I was doing a talk at Penguin at their head offices in London, which is on Vauxhall Bridge Road. So between River Thames and the, the centre of London, Buckingham Palace is just up the road. So it's a major arterial road of six lanes of traffic. It's huge. The buses that go through to Victoria Station, the millions of people go past this. And, uh, and it's an old listed building and it has just this amazing frontage. And I was doing a talk and my background before Liberty was in raves and nightclubs. And so I was looking at this window and just thinking I could fly poster that window i mean it's the size of a london bus i mean just imagine and i went to inquire with the building manager who chased me out of the building literally uh you know westminster council health and safety it's a list of building. i mean all this stuff of course and um, that just made me want to do it even more and i got a quote from these guys who do massive vinyl banners and the, you've seen the book it's bright 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 pink and so let's get this really really high octane bright pink coverage the book there we go. Yeah. that kind of hot pink and then take over the front of penguins offices and um and i found a guy and i got a quote and it was quite a lot of money 1750 something pounds and then weirdly i got a call from tom weldon who is the chief executive of the entire penguin Random house group in the uk and is a very nice man i've worked with him previously and he was interested in my 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 perspective having been an entrepreneur so understanding a bit of the workings of the business um, becoming an author and, and what did I think and so I shared some uh, insight he said oh that's really interesting would you um, come to the, the, the office and share that with the leadership team do a presentation I said oh yes I'd be very happy to but I have to charge you a fee he was like do you know we're publishing your book I think <laughs> I think that would just be nice <laughs> to do I thought like, yes yes but I need something for the campaign and um, he said okay well how much do you need and I said 1750 whatever it was pounds he said, that's very specific. What's it for? And I said, I don't think I can tell you. I don't, <laughs> I don't think you'll agree. And he's a, he's a really decent man with a good sense of humor. And he said, okay, just don't do anything. Don't do anything to, don't do anything that's going to get me in trouble. Don't do anything to my business. I said, okay. And, um, and then I got it made and I explained to the, the banner company that we didn't really have permission. They thought it was a really good laugh. Uh, and they were brilliant about it. And so we showed up with high-vis vests, the ladder, clipboard, everything that made us look official. I forged a letter pretending it was from Tom saying, you know, giving me approval to do this installation. But it took us about 90 minutes. And then I just ran on the day of the book was out on May the 3rd. And then we just ran away. <laughs> brilliant. And it was, um, it was, and this has happened a few times, you know, going back to the text in the, the, the middle of the book, I kind of outlined this framework of what I've observed from the, the classic age of pirates and how you might be able to apply any of this. If any of this, if any of this sense of broad frustration feels familiar and any of this kind of inspiration to take some action feels, feels interesting, then, uh, I, I outlined these five stages that they seem to work. And the first one is just the act of rebellion. And I, this is why I did it. It was to raise a flag that says, I'm frustrated and I'm willing to do something that makes a difference. And I'm willing to put my neck on the line to a degree uh, to, to make a signal. Now, I'm an incredibly privileged white dude 
who can show up and stick a banner on the front of a building and no one, you know, is going to arrest me. Like, I, I know that. So I think we have to find ways of our rebellion that feels appropriate to the level of privilege that we had. So hopefully that was risky enough. And there was certainly threats of me losing my book deal on the day of launch when I'd been the first author to do that. So, you know, it was it was an appropriate level of risk of what I can get away with. But what it what it really did, as well as generate some good PR coverage and, and, and sales that day, was I think it signaled that this isn't just about inspiration, it's about action. You know, and, and, and talk minus action equals shit, I, I, I once heard. And I, I, I like very much the phrase. And that feels like the kind of times that we're in. So I, I kind of got on a bit of a roll with it. When the uh, US deal was announced, uh, by this point, I'd begun to meet quite a lot of pirates. And one of them had told me he had a 30,000 lumen projector. So um, we projected a really big image of Donald Trump with an eye patch onto the side of Westminster at 125 feet. Um, that got us in some shady trouble. But again, it just kept the noise going and then it was international talk like a pirate day which is all about the parody and the pastiche of pirates that i kind of want to retell the, the history so we did a big campaign on the london underground i borrowed all of the advertising on the victoria line that day and so it just continued we had loads of fun i did a, a takeover of a window display in waterstones uh where i just showed up with a bag of books and just reorganized the windows for them um massive sense of humor failure on that one and it was again you know hopefully cheeky hopefully provocative again you know i am a very privileged guy not everyone could get away with to the same level so that's why i was trying to find things that were appropriate to keep on calling out this notion that there is a different way of doing things that there are some rules that deserve to be if not broken at least bent and played around with and there are different ways of, of doing live the values of the book and i will continue to do so right uh, and that's so that's rule one isn't it of your of your five rules is is rebel and Yes, uh, and that means taking action. It sounds like, right? I mean, I suppose that all the great icons of, uh, I suppose, countercultural movements took action, right? They jumped in front of horses, or they, or Rosa yeah. Parks refused to sit in the right part of the bus, or, um, yeah. And it's interesting because I'm I'm a professional who works a lot in the, the change leadership and change management space, and we talk so much about the process and um, doing change properly and 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 how we should implement it with best practice and all of that and, and and what gets lost in all of that sort of bureaucratic professional conversation is what really has change happen is somebody somewhere taking an action yeah um that generally speaking goes against what's expected within that environment yes and it opens a new possibility and that that really resonates with me that message so I, I think that this, is really, this is really important. This is not where I expected the book to go into this kind of space, but I think part of my frustration. So I've sat in, in many really important and well-intended off-sites and away days about change. How do we bring about it? And, and there's lots of smart people who know that this something needs to change. But what we, we find really hard to get to is everyone's the motivations for really bringing about change. So often we'll go away, talk about transformation, disruption, and then go back to our desks and do exactly what it was that we've always done. And you don't quite know where it's going to come from. And to kind of call bullshit on that, I, I, I came up with the, the framework of it. And that's how I've run it. It's turned into a, turned into, I've got invited into lots of organizations I never dreamed of getting anywhere near saying, we really like this as a, as a manifesto and a framework. Can you come and run a workshop? And I had to make one up because I talk about workshopping in the book, but I'm meaning that as an adjective. Like I workshop the material to try and make sure that it was trustworthy and, and, and robust. So when I was then called in to do a workshop, I was like, all right, we'll find something, I'm sure. And so I think the act of rebellion as a starting point is really, really useful because to, you know, who can't think of a rule that needs breaking? 
you know, a rule that needs challenging, a, a thing that we all do at work, and we do it because that's the way it's always been done. And that's the most common reason I hear. Why do we do this? Because so-and-so did it. You know, and so really what we're talking about is precedence, and precedent is kind of habit. You know, outside of the very few regulations there to protect us, which I'm not suggesting we break, largely it's just a lot of bad habits around the workplace that we all kind of conform to because work is conformist by and large. And then what happens when someone has the moment of thinking, you know, sod it, that, that rule around, I don't know, um, one of my favourites, and I really love it because it seems so kind of tiny, was some young guys, and they were really frustrated in the publishing industry about timekeeping, and their manager was an absolute stickler for more being in at 9am. Now, these are guys who, of course, they're super connected all the time, they write in their evenings, they're always researching, they're always on point, and, and like, they wanted the flexibility, and this one guy particularly wanted flexibility because of his uh, passion for fermenting. So he was... <laughs> oh, fermenting, yeah. He loved kimchi and uh, chutneys and, and various things. And so in the mornings, which is a good time to ferment, it turns out, he wanted to spend a bit of time on his passion and then come in a bit late because he knows that he's still putting in all the hours that, 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 that God sends. And he just hated the formality of being judged on this really outdated metric. Now, this is tiny, right? But this is a real rule and frustration for lots of people who's, Lives don't necessarily fit into a format that was kind of invented for, fa for factory owners and managers to be able to manage units of time properly, which is no longer appropriate. And so he led a very small rebellion, which meant that he started coming in at a time that was appropriate to him. And at the other end of it, being able to prove that he could do his job better. And it's really important that we're not just breaking rules wantonly for the sake of it, but I can break a rule to make things better. That's what we're really looking for. And so this young guy does it and gets into some trouble, but because he's broken a rule, some others, this is why we raise a flag or why I fly past the penguins, so the other rule breakers who wanted to break will then gather around you. And then you've got all you need, which is a small group of committed citizens willing to make a difference. And then they stuck to their new rule. And having got in a bit of trouble, they began to realize that, fuck it, like many of these things, they're the thin paper walls that divide us. And you push your hand through, and not only do you now stand a chance of feeling more empowered, and you've challenged that thing, and now maybe what else should I challenge? But they began to set a new precedent. And the new precedent was these smart young things get the bloody job done and they can have a little bit of autonomy over their time because they should be trusted. And then things began to change. And then if you take that, I mean, and I deliberately use a small example, but you take that and you blow it up into other areas, we begin to remind ourselves of this really important point, that change can come from all of us as individuals if we're willing to take the first. And it has to be a brave step to do so. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And then I think that there are people within organisations who may see these rule breakers. And, and one of the things that there's a book by a Harvard academic called Highfist, and he talks about uh, adaptive change or leading adaptive change. And one of the, the two things he says that I think are important, one is that when we're leading um, adaptive change, like change that's going to make a difference to, ch to, to ultimately alter the whole system, we're, we're profoundly disappointing. We're profoundly disappointing those around us because we're stepping outside of what you're describing here, the habits, the norms and so on. Um, but he also talks that as a, as a manager or boss in an organization, one of the ways that we can increase the level of adaptive change in an organization is to protect the fire starters. So to allow those individuals who are the rebels, who are going outside the norm, to, to run a little bit, right? Not immediately to to try and step in and, and shut these um, these things down. A bit like your publisher did, right? They didn't immediately cancel your book deal, right? They they kind of allowed you to run a bit. Yeah, 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 absolutely. That. And I think that's why the, the idea of it, you know, when people have got me in to do this, and sometimes people are a bit concerned, like, oh, you know, 
how radical is this going to get? What happens if I've got everybody on the team breaking rules and, and running right? You know, I, I, <laughs> I understand your concern. But unless, unless the invitation is a bit more radical, right? If the invitation is let's go into a room and get some post-it notes out and talk about change and all knowing full well that nothing's really going to happen, then nothing is going to happen. If the invitation is let's be pirates and create space for this rebellion, then yes, there'll be some bold talk and yes, there'll be some strong thoughts. And by and large, really smart people who like this organization and their jobs will probably end up just doing the right thing. But at least you started with the, the spirit and the promise of really doing something different. Because without that, I think we routinely uh, align ourselves to being unaligned and, and change doesn't really ladder up to anything. So I'd agree with that point that if you create some space around it, and then often what happens out of these sessions is that the teams will have now come up with the change that they want to see in the organization and their manager or the leader. But that's what I've been saying for ages. But, you know, it's that thing of going on the journey yourself and feeling the ownership of the change you want to be. And, and um, the, what I've kind of rooted this around is a sense of mutiny. So the phrase obviously has negative connotations. But um, if you've got a small group of people within the organization willing to mutiny, right, one of them has come up with the idea for doing something different. The others have said, yeah, we like the sound of that. It goes against the grain of what's been done, but there's enough now power in the dynamic of a small group, and we will begin to push against the tide and go in the other direction. That's a mutiny. And a mutiny is a really powerful thing. And what I'll argue is that there's no, if you want it to work, you've created the space for it to happen, and then you shouldn't put any kind of success measures over the top of it. Because if we're really talking about change, you don't quite know where that's going to go. So give it freedom. The only real measure of change is does it form a new habit that other people independently begin to follow the new rule that that new mutinous group has set out. And that's really where change seems to come in. So avoiding the post-it notes as much as you can, not putting a plan around it, or that notion of, well, these have been some really great ideas. We'll go and take these away and follow up. And you know exactly where that goes. Like, put it into the slides and share it on the email thread to the death of all good ideas. But yeah, exactly. What you want to encourage, yeah, it's, it's about encouraging people to go out, take action form a new habit, see if you can find some, some followers and, and see if you can get something going. I think it is. You know, that sounds, you know, it can sound trite or a bit. bit it's a, yeah, I and you say things like, well, you need to be brave and it should, you should have some fun with them. Some people go, oh, you know, what's all that? It just feels empty and meaningless. But actually there's nothing meaningless about action. And it's the only thing that really does begin to stimulate and make a change. And the danger of smart people is they like to complicate things. And, and actually simple steps of action compounded on a daily basis regularly over time that's really when you get to large-scale change who is it is it our, is it our, no, is it, does it give me a, a strong enough prop and the right lever and i can move the world you know that's what we're really looking for over time and i'm fascinated by this that the, the compounding effects of something is really far more important than the than the over strategizing of it you know the existential crisis that we all get ourselves into with you know let's write another paper about the change that we should create versus simple actions undertaken every day and you know over three months which one's going to get us there i know that one will create a nice paper that not many anyone's going to read after that point and the other one will probably ladder up to something being a difference yeah and the other thing that i'm getting as we're speaking now is and your your sharing of mr kimchi is that the this idea that you've got in the book about inverting the, the pyramid so so we start with self-actualization we start yep. with what's important to us and it sounds to me like this guy who's doing his fermentation, he starts with that, right? I want, I want to ferment, right? That's going to be part of my identity, part of my expression. Yeah. How can I have that happen? Am I, am I getting that right? Is that really important here? That notion of the, the inversion of, of, of Maslow, I, I, feel, I felt this really strongly over the, 
the, the years of liberty. So liberty has this really interesting model where uh, we are trying to re-engineer the, the, the way of working. It's effectively kind of a marketing agency model, but rather than just marketing, we're looking for meaning. So how can we get organizations to think differently about their audience, uh, particularly young people? So to, to be that ourselves, the doors of liberty are open to young people every single day. Big warehouse in the middle of Brixton in Johannesburg, uh, where our two main bases and young people from all walks of life, backgrounds, be they in education or outside of education, in gangs and in trouble or you know, meaningfully in, invested in their future careers, they come in and share the space. And so I've shared space with really smart young people for nearly 20 years. And, and that's where my philosophy around this really began to come from, that that idea, the, oh, the notion of Maslow, that it's not until we've had a certain degree of success that we begin to self-actualize or, or look for self-actualizing seems to me to have really shifted and it became acutely clear. I did a series of interviews across every single Commonwealth country. And what was profound about that, it was about leadership. And so speaking to young people in, in rural areas, in urban areas, in middle-class backgrounds, in really, really tough ex experiences. And consistently and almost unanimously, they were concerned about the consequences of their decisions. They, they understood the broader social economic uh, environmental challenges the world was facing and by and large most of them wanted to do something that was either going to positively impact it or not negatively impact it and these are kids who should just be focusing on the next education choice they've got to make or their first step in a career they already knew uh, whether the environment they saw was their village or their city or the world they knew that there was this bigger profound moment so they were they were already self-actualizing in a, in a in a true maslow sense not just the economic model of it um, before they got through all the other pillars, you know, they didn't have complete security or shelter. They hadn't like gone through the professional journey. And it blew me away, it just really blew me away. And now I think it's becoming much more commonplace. You see this you know, huge surge in entrepreneurship in the younger generation. And, you know, even the notion of social enterprise, which is a you know, only a 25 year old thought that I really strongly advocate, even, even that's being surpassed because it's not such that you have to design a business with a social purpose. You know, it's just natural. It's natural now, of course, that what we're doing is not going to be rampantly pulling the resources of the world away, or actually even doing something that's going to be addressing the issues and the values that are, are important to me as well. So there's a huge shift in in that sense, and, and you know, it feels pretty punchy and bold of me, and non-academic, and you know, making it up most of the time to be challenging Maslow or thinking I can evolve Maslow. But yeah, of, of anything you could test me on, that's something that I really, really do profoundly believe and, and have lived and, and witnessed in thousands and thousands of young people. Yeah, I, uh, I, it does feel like that's a, a major theme in whatever this shift that's currently happening is, is about. People wanting to participate in a different way, right, with, with a different level of meaning for, for what they're doing. Yeah, 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 yeah it, it does. And I'm, it's the bit of, of, of all of it where I draw my greatest optimism. You know, it'd be easier at the moment to be less than optimistic. But I um, I find that if I'm, I don't go to Westminster as much, but I certainly, you know, I used to be a social enterprise ambassador for government. And, you know, you just kind of come away feeling like, what the actual fuck? You know, who, where are the grown-ups with a plan? And they're not there. And then if I find myself back in any of the entrepreneur networks or Alan Pico, which is an incredible, thriving network of young social entrepreneurs or anywhere at Liberty or, or elsewhere mentoring, I would be the opposite and I'd be deeply in, in, inspired and motivated and think, Christ, there's the energy, there's the ideas, there's the appetite for change. And also, you know, not with the arrogance to think they know best, but certainly with the kind of 
aptitude and, and self-belief that they really do have some answers and if they don't they can they can start to work it out but witnessing that around me in in liberty this generation who started just to less feel the need for permission than ever before and because they have the ability to just go and find it out for themselves it's a it's a mm. it's educating self-retailing self-manufacturing itself re you know so many things and in there i find you know a great source of, of energy inspiration and i should be clear i don't mean to make it a generational divide at all i, I mean i think it's a i think it's very much a mindset but it's more pronounced in that, in that generation that are coming through yeah well and doesn't it make sense that we're not going to find that in the government i mean sort of almost definitely given your philosophy here it, it, it's not going to be in the established structures and, and and seats of power where where we're going to find this energy no certainly not but i i like lots of people kind of grew up thinking that that's where you know smart responsible people who have long-term plans you know go <laughs> and they're deeply disappointed <laughs> to discover it's not it's where narcissists go to you know exert their fucking egos on on everyone else um and that's really unfair because there are obviously some incredible uh, people in those and, and the values that you need and the energy you need to survive at the moment, certainly to get through and be in that position is incredible. Um, but yes, the the kind of change that's got to come. And I, and I arrived at this point, and I do say it with some caution, but it does feel like many of our large institutions are so have failed so much. And I, I mean... Because the work I've done with young people viewing education as a failing institution is really tough because it's not about the teaching profession or the people who are working really hard to do something about it. But we're so far away from preparing the young people who need the certain set of skills for where they're going to arrive into the world. And there's a real chance I can't see of it, of it catching up with that much the same way I can't see Westminster politics reinventing itself from within to now give us, you know, uh, an appropriate level of digital interaction for full representative democracy to that which we're used to in most other kind of products and services. It's got no. So where's it going to come from? It's going to come from something outside, you know, new platforms, new ideas, allow new things to flourish up alongside it whilst the model that we've had begins to crumble and to, to respectfully and elegantly let it, you know, be less important whilst other things are trialed and new systems begin to emerge. And that's why I think this message of piracy is so important or understanding some of these guys on the edges and not just the younger guys but the pioneers the rebels on the outskirts and the innovation that they're coming up with are beginning to lay the foundations of what new systems might be much to that same point that the, the, the pirates didn't say right we'll, we'll invent workplace compensation so that it could become an inalienable human right in a 245 years hell no but if we are now faced with these great big challenges, who are the people like the pirates were, you know, meeting in, in shady pubs, having quiet conversations in the corners because they've got a really big idea, right? That's, that's, that's the opportunity now to find those new ideas that lay the foundations for the systems that might see us through the next hundred years. Yeah. And I, I think that's true of society, but I also think that's absolutely true of, of corporations. And of course, so many corporations now are, concerned with becoming more agile um the rate in which they're falling out of the FTSE 100 the the, the churn of and the topple rate of these organizations is increasing increasing so so i think the the big lesson for me here is to allow those conversations in the shady pubs metaphorically in their organizations to flourish and build and and let people run with things and sort of accept that the answers aren't going to be there in the center uh, and accept that the bureaucracy is not going to be the place where 
uh, the, the innovation comes from. So I know that's difficult. It takes a level of humility for people in senior positions to accept, but I, I believe that's a message they, they need to listen, you know, to really take on. Yeah, I mean, I, so I, I believe that firmly. I think it's Charles Ledbetter, he's got a book or an essay, you know, innovation takes place at the edges. And I just firmly believe that's true. And as, you know, at Unilever, for example, talking corporate, you know, an organization I really respect. And I think what they've done over the last 10 years in terms of setting out a clear set of values has been absolutely incredible. But they're a good example for this because I was invited to their innovation lab in the middle of London. And, you know, it's like a James Bond style environment and it's almost retina scans to get inside. And then they've kind of recreated people's homes and recreated supermarket environments and they get real people and they put them into these like real, like, you know, you could just go to the supermarket, like go to Aldi in Watford and, you know, meet real people and see what they actually do in this kind of, actually wouldn't be Aldi, they wouldn't sell the name brand products, but nonetheless, go to the fucking Asda in Wolverhampton and meet real people. And, um, just a surprise, isn't it? It's just, uh, and I, I'm very fortunate. You know, the Liberty model is exactly that, that, that you, you we're a bit more human centered in the way that we design our processes. Um, and understand that under a spotlight, innovation rarely takes place. And, you know, with respect to everyone with innovation in their job title or those kind of well-funded units where there is, you know, good thinking comes from, but to overlook the edges, to overlook the shadows, you know, and which is where pirates, went and one of the things that pirates are very good at doing in, in the, the, i met some really interesting or came across some really interesting pirate economists and they argue it's exactly that that's the role where the role of piracy becomes legitimate uh, is in the invention of the new and the discovery of new markets territories and, and arenas and the examples range from um you know steve jobs looking at uh, LimeWire, Nutella, and the early kind of file sharing sites when he was talking about iTunes to get the, the thinking. You know, it was the pirates who'd done the work setting out the new territory, much like Pirate Bay was as part of the inspiration for Netflix, or even, um, you know, back to uh, our, our favorite listener, the BBC was a state backed monopoly with only two channels for, you know, decades and decades. And it wasn't until Pirate Radio came along, literally demonstrated a new model. And it, when it was just providing, you know, popular entertainment, it wasn't a threat. But when it started commercially realizing, you know, bringing millions of pounds in advertising revenue, that's when the BBC took it really seriously and legislated against it. But by then it was too late because a new model had been formed. And when we had you know, a new type of commercial, um, well, you know, almost a new industry. So again and again, and now, you know, it'll be in space. The space pirates are out there, you know, as we're, we're working on how to, terraform and, and and asteroid mine and everything else like undoubtedly some of it is being pushed forward by the likes of elon musk and, and everything else but there'll be space pirates out there looking to make a quick buck too who'll be pushing things even further and faster forward i just like to say space pirates as many times as I, <laughs> yeah. in a grown-up serious conversation <laughs> that's good that's good yeah is elon musk our number one space pirate maybe he is no he's a preposterous talent Oh, you don't, you don't, you don't buy him as a pirate. Oh no, I've got, I, I do. I, I've got a lot of. I find him fascinating, and I think he's doing an incredible job to drive the agenda forward. Certainly, in terms, you know, certainly what what Tesla Solar City stands for, and the, you know, he he's, he he I wrote about in the book. He he put the 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 plan together, his secret plan, which is published on their website. You know. Hmm. Prove that you can make a battery effective and, and, and work by sticking it in a really fast car that will make people pay attention, then make it a mainstream car. They're now the most profitable or highly valued business on earth. 
just to get like the solar story in the place that it wasn't before. It was just Priuses and all sounded, you know, just nothing but virtue signaling. And there's an argument that Tesla is still that. But by God, he's pushed the agenda, hasn't he? But no, in, in his daily job, he just, he's also quite a, quite a challenging individual, individual. But yeah, he probably earns full pirate status. As we've already covered, the morality is to one side. So if you, even if you're a mad dickhead, you're probably allowed in at times. So you can be a preposterous bellend and a pirate. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm living proof. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Good. Okay, so we got we got the we got the book, we got the we got the workshops. What what's the new the new frontier for you, Pirate Sam? So I spent the first six months um not really believing all of this noise that was coming in at me, right? All these emails I was getting and DMs were saying, I've got, I've, I've resigned, or I've just gone and started this thing in my community. Like, yeah, I mean, you must all be nutters, right? This happens to anyone who writes a book. And um and then it hit such a volume and frequency. And I was speaking to other publishers and authors and they were like, no, no, I mean yes, we get letters from strange people, but not like this. This is really something. So um I got over myself, and in January, I uh, made an Eventbrite page for an arbitrary date and sent a tweet into the universe that said, are you all really real? And if you are real, would you like to get together and find out what it is that we're doing that's working? And the event sold out in 13 minutes, and I think 150 people all then assembled on a, a galleon on a ship about what they're doing, and they're really real. And so I recruited a full-time person, a fantastic woman called Alexandra Burke, who joined me from the RSA, where she was head of fellowship, so she really gets... This idea of social change and comes from, you know, quite a well-respected, high-minded organization that totally embodies the lots of talk and not much trousers, um, you know. And so together we've started to really interview, interrogate and understand what's taking place, both as an outcome of these workshops and people who have taken action on the back of the book. And uh, I'm dedicating myself this year. So I'm, I'm getting quite a lot of really well-paid uh, gigs and workshops. which are amazing from organizations that range from like Sony to Mercedes and Red Bull and Heineken. Like I never would have believed it. Where exactly the stuff we're talking about, there's a real need for change. We've done several transformation away days and we don't seem to understand why nothing's changed. Um, and I've got a model which, you know, everyone leaves act already acting out change in a different way. And then we're using that to kind of cross-subsidize and grow this community. So we've Build a map to work out where everyone is in the UK. We're beginning to like join the dots between the pirates and education, of which there are dozens. You know, who really want to. Re- we just did run a workshop with sixty head teachers, um, lots in health, lots in large organisations, and the the moment just to kind of give it away that the framework, the, the term I'm using is professional rule breaking, which seems to kind of sum this up because they're within organisations that people love. You know, these are jobs that people want to have, and we're looking for the best moment in their career, perhaps. But this frustration that change is so hard to bring about. So it's professional. It's a paradox of both being rule-breaking but done in a professional environment. And we're working out what the tenets of this seem to be. So what are the most consistent patterns that we can synthesize that really seem to be working, whether it's in a small community organization or a FTSE 100 or a multinational or whatever it is. And then can they be reapplied and can we you know, robustly prove that over time with a decent... Um, uh, number of um uh, of pirates and there are some really consistent patterns and so we're uh interviewing and pulling together and i'm planning to try and put it into a real framework of professional rule breaking probably self-publish it so it sits as an accompaniment so being on pirate can still be the inspiration 
But if you now really, really want to take action, because I reflect on the book, like I think the first part's really good and the latter part is interesting, but it, it still doesn't leave you with actually what you're going to do. So I didn't know what, what, where we were going to get to. So it's kind of the missing fourth part, which is now how do you really go and do this? How have others done it? It's just an interesting idea. Maybe it's just trying to stick it back into the original book. Hmm. Anyway, it's my, my work this year is understanding that Beamer Pirate has inspired something. I think the best way to describe it is professional rule breaking. I'm trying to capture that into something that others will be able to use. So I should be able to share something by the end of the year is my plan in both video and audio and make a site for it as downloadable resources so people can actually put this stuff into place and it can scale beyond it being me. Wow. Well, I think that that hasn't, yeah, that has the potential to make a huge difference, doesn't it? Because there's a there's a there's a sort of subsection of your audience, I'm sure, who could take the, the pirate message, but the sort of professional rule breaking scene would seem like it would open up another another cohort altogether, right? I'm really uh, as someone who works in the space. I'm really glad you said that because what day is it today? Thursday. It's only last Tuesday that I right, that I hit this realization and thought, right, that feels really that feels really right, and and it's been fed back to me many many times that this idea. Your pirate is really inspiring for some people and others like you know that sounds a bit trite and this this step into professional rule breaking begin to formalize it and it being the way that our organizations can pull in the right direction i mean you know it's not like we're not in the middle of crisis after crisis and yet you know but nine to five are just going to be mainly orientated towards selling some more chicken tonight right so how are we going to pull that in, in this kind of direction speed and, and, and scale that's required yeah so it feels like it's resonating and it feels really exciting and although i was trying desperately hard not to start something uh having only escaped like escaped that's the wrong word isn't it um left let's step back having a real job um yeah so it might turn into a thing which i'm now excited about good well i look forward to seeing how that that develops well if anyone's listening and out there and has enjoyed any of this stuff we're looking now in much the same way i did with the, the book workshopping it looking to workshop and test the ideas of professional rule breaking so over the summer i'm going to finish the job of capturing it all and then as we come into autumn this year have stuff to give away and share so if anyone wants to test some early models of professional rule breaking then get in touch awesome yeah that's great so final question i love to ask a lot of my guests the title of the show is being human for you, Sam, what does it what does it mean to be human? I I think that the sense of fun is really easy to overlook. But I think in the times when it's really important, and I think you know, you could say free speech or whatever else, and without it, we will we'll lose our you know society breaks down. But I think sense of humour is just as important. I think the second we're really not enjoying this and we let it overwhelm, I think we as humans, we're supposed to be, supposed to thrive, right? With all this opportunity around. And yes, fucking life is really tough and difficult. And I know this personally at the moment more than ever, it's got really hard. But um, if you lose that sense of enjoyment or at least the ability to adventure out and have the curious to find somewhere to have a laugh and a space to do so, the joy of it just begins to diminish. And without that, you know, it's really easy for all of this to become about numbers and facts and uh, the real grown-up stuff and I'm, I'm more sure than ever that if I was to lose my sense of fun I'd definitely lose what I think it means to be human so I'm fighting to keep it great and it sounds like putting events together on galleons is a good way to uh, to keep it going 
Uh, well, as soon as it sold out like that, I thought, you know, I have to do this kind of justice. And I've always believed that um, you can't trust a meeting that doesn't have any laughter in it. So you need to you need to make sure you organise that. And that was this was going to be a big meeting. So it was actually the worst place on earth to have any kind of networking event because it was built for like five foot high people 300 years ago. But one, so it's just a disaster. <laughs> the worst networking on earth is on a virus. So yeah, we'll be doing that again. But um, it was fun nonetheless. Good. Okay, so for people who want to learn more, bemorepirate.com, is that right? The, the, yep. the main place yep. to go to, they can search yep. Be More Pirate on their favourite bookseller. Yes, yes, you can. Um, or you can buy it from your local independent bookstore if you like people who pay their taxes. Um, and on Be More Pirate, we're updating case studies of people that we've spoken to. Um, there are some incredible individuals out there who've really taken action on the back of this so there's new case studies being updated there's there's a map the country where different people who take undertake a part so even if you don't know what the rule you want to break is you can go and find someone else who's got a rule to break and then go and get involved with them in your local area or in your passion or industry or sector i mean it's it's really evolving it's all down to alex who's doing a fantastic job thank god excellent all right well thank you so much for your time absolute pleasure very much yes it has been it's been an honor and uh, and a pleasure so thank you all right and without further ado thanks for your time thanks sam pleasure thank you very much the being human podcast was brought to you by first human for more on first humans human focused coaching and leadership programs head to first human dot com